Our mission statement as a church is what? To have coffee after service, right? <laughs> is to know Jesus and make him known. And today we'll be focusing on the last phrase, to make Jesus known. As we said last week, uh, we believe that as Christians we are all missionaries uh, called to make Jesus known in the places and the spaces where he has placed us. But now I'm guessing that that invokes in us, in some of us at least, a feeling of dauntedness, maybe nervousness, or maybe even fear, or maybe you're saying, Jason, you have no idea the people I work with, or my family members, or my friends. Uh, you know, if I mention the word Jesus, literally all hell will break loose, there'll be debates, there'll be arguments, uh, it just gets really, really bad, uh, or, or maybe... And maybe this is even worse, you know, it just gets awkwardly silent. You know, they don't know what to say, and then you don't know what to say afterwards, and it's just like, it's weird, it's awkward. Or maybe you're thinking, I just don't know what to say. I, I just don't think I have it in me. Uh, you know, I don't know enough to, to say anything. And so I remember as a young Christian, when, when missionaries would come and visit our church, and they would share these amazing stories of how God had used them to, to bring people to, to faith, sometimes in the most trying circumstances, sometimes in the most dangerous circumstances. And yet there they stood full of joy and full of boldness. And, I, and it always puzzled me. I could never understand. I mean, like how could you have so much joy in almost losing all of your toes to frostbite just to share the gospel with someone? Or how could you have so much boldness in being arrested in Egypt, being beaten up and being threatened to lose your head if you continue to preach the gospel? What was it that caused this joy? What was it that caused this boldness in them despite the situations, despite the circumstances that they were in? And there I was as a young Christian, too scared to even tell some of my friends that I was a Christian. So what is the secret? What is the secret to making Jesus known? I'll tell you what the secret is not. It's not us. It's not a fancy, eloquent gospel presentation. It's also not a scintillating, exciting testimony like, you know, once I was a pyromaniac, now I'm just on fire for Jesus type of deal. It's, it's going to sound like an anticlimax. But the secret, the secret is simply this, knowing the joy of God's grace through the gospel. Experiencing God's joy or the grace that God's, or the joy that, that God's grace brings us through the gospel and then depending on that grace to make Jesus known to others. So here's what I'm proposing. We'll put this on screen. As Christians, we are to depend, in order to make Jesus known, depend on the power of God's grace to accomplish the mission of the gospel. The secret to making him known is not ourselves. It's God's grace. It's God himself with his grace through the good news of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. Or we could say it like this. We're not left to ourselves to try and convince others that they need Jesus. Otherwise, I would tap out. Because I'm not that convincing, I'm not that brave. In fact, I need God's grace not only to make Jesus known, but I need God's grace to, to know Jesus in the first place. 
And so when I say grace, I don't mean that it's simply God's kindness to forgive us our sins, which it most definitely is, but it's, it's so much more than that. It's also the power of God. It's the power of God to to break into hardened, sinful hearts like mine, open spiritual eyes to see Jesus and believe in Jesus, believe what he did on the cross and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. And secondly, it's the power of God to live out the Christian life. God's grace transforms our lives. And so this grace comes to us by faith in Jesus and through the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. I mean, if that's not grace, then I don't know what is. God doesn't just simply forgive us, but he helps us to believe, and then he doesn't just simply leave us on our own, okay? Now you've got to figure out this Christian life on your own, and I'll see you on the other end. No, no, God the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and helps us live out our faith, and most importantly, join him in the spread of the gospel. His grace helps us to know him and then make him known. So what we're going to see this morning is how his grace through us as vessels of, the, of, the gra- of his grace in the gospel can overcome any sinful heart and bring it into the light. So here's where we're going. Here's our outline. God's grace accomplishes his mission by, number one, overcoming the religious heart, secondly, the demonic heart, and then thirdly, overcoming the hopeless heart. So if you still got your place in Acts chapter 16, read with me from verse 11. So here we go. Paul and his team, they're on their second missionary journey. So this is a bit of context. It says this. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a, a direct voyage to Samothrace and, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And now here comes the action in the city of Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here we go. Point number one, God's grace accomplishes his mission through us by overcoming the, firstly, the religious heart. So what do I mean by religious heart? Uh, Those of you who have been a Christian for some time will probably understand what I'm saying, or what I'm getting to, but others of you who are new to Christianity, you, you might still view it as having, uh, or meaning having faith in God, or having a belief system of sorts, like, like Christianity is just one of the many religions out there in the world, which, which is true, but the meaning I have here is of a negative connotation. I define it as a, as a mindset or a, a heart attitude where someone determines their own moral standards and then through their own strength attempts to live out those moral standards and they conclude that if they've done a good job, then they're a good person. 
And if they're a good person, then they must be a good person before God. They will be righteous before God. We could say it like this. If I do things that make me feel good, and I stop doing things that make me feel bad, therefore I must be a good person, therefore God must see me as a good person. Never mind that our own standards don't come near God's holy standards. But secondly, the problem is we're not even good at keeping our own laws. And so what we often do is we simply then shift the goalposts. You ever met someone who you know, was living a morally upright life and seemed to have it all together and then you, you bump into them a, like a month later or a couple of years later and they're no longer living the way they used to? And you think, why? What happened? Maybe because it became too difficult to live according to those standards, or maybe they met someone else who lived a different way, had a different philosophy or, or morality in life, and they're just simply living that way now. They've moved their own moral goalposts. Goal and so this brings us to Lydia. Look at the first part of verse 14. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Paul introduces us now to Lydia, the first person in, he interacts with in Philippi. And he says that she's a businesswoman, originally from the city of Thyatira. Uh, in fact, we're not sure that if she has moved to Philippi or not. Maybe she's just on a business trip. Maybe she's trying to make some more sales. But he tells us that she is a seller of purple goods. And purple cloth was considered very luxurious in those days, you know, upper market kind of stuff. And, and this purple dye uh, would either come from some type of shell, uh, they would extract it from a shell, or from a plant called the, the madder plant. And there was a lot that went into it, and they would then dye this cloth that was now for the, for those, uh, for the prestigious elite. And so the question then is, well, what has this got to do with a religious heart? Well, you see how he describes her. He says she was a worshiper of God. Now, that was commonly used for non-Jewish people who were known as Gentiles who became a Jewish proselyte, meaning they converted to Judaism and began to worship and relate to God through the old covenant system, through the old covenant law. So the Jews who, so the few Jews who were in Philippi, and we know that there were only a few, because you only needed 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. And so the Jews would, would go to synagogue, usually on a Sabbath or on the Sabbath, but if, they, if there wasn't one, they would then make their way to a river where they could pray and uh, use the water for ritual washings. And so these Jews would not only obey the old covenant law, but they'd kind of mix in also their, their Jewish traditions in order to make them feel righteous before God or deemed to be good before God. But here's the big kicker. The old covenant law was never meant to save you or justify you or make you righteous before God. Paul explains its purpose to the Galatian church like this. Uh, and the Galatians uh, were saved by the gospel, but then these false teachers, these Judaizers, came to Galatia or to the church there. And they said, no, no, you can believe in Jesus, but you also have to obey the law. You have to do the law in order to, to make sure that your salvation is a sure thing. So listen to this, Galatians 3.23. Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You think, well, Paul, what does that mean? Verse 24. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Here's the purpose. In order that we might be justified by faith. Now that word guardian can also mean custodian. It can also mean supervisor. It can also even mean the word uh, tutor. And so as our supervisor, as our tutor, the law revealed a couple of things to us. It revealed just how incredibly holy God is, just how incredibly high his standards are, and just how sinful we are. And that we would never be able to, in our own strength, be able to attain his holy standards in our own strength. We we would never be justified by the law. Rather, what he's saying is the law the whole time was pointing us towards the one who would ultimately come and fulfill the requirements of the law for us. And not just that, he would then take the penalty of our transgressions for breaking the law. He would take that penalty upon himself. And he says, so by faith in him, what he then did on the cross, the penalty of our sins, all of our sins, all of our unrighteousness upon himself, through faith in him, he says, we are justified. You see, religion and law keeping is all about me. It's all about us. But faith is all about looking away from ourselves To Jesus, who then begins to produce the godly life in us that the law and our own self-strength and effort could never produce. See, that's often the argument that I get. It's like, well, if it's the good news is you're saved just by faith in Jesus, well, then how are you going to stop sinning? And shouldn't you do all of these things and stop doing all of those things? No, no. Genuine faith in Jesus begins to produce the life of Jesus in us and through us. Genuine faith in Jesus results in the Holy Spirit taking up residence in us. And he begins to produce what the law in our own strength couldn't produce. And so I'm willing to hazard a pretty big bet. That's exactly what Paul was explaining to these ladies down at the river. But here's the problem. You see, you can explain the gospel to someone until you blew in the face. Especially to someone who thinks they're morally upright and they've got it all together. And you can go nowhere. Or you can go on, on mission all around the world, preaching the gospel, explaining the gospel, and not avail anything. You see, what we need to realize is that we're not the be-all and end-all when it comes to the mission of the gospel. God is. God himself and the effectual power of his grace. Let me show this to you. Look at verse 14 again. So he introduces us to Lydia, and then he says this in the last sentence. He says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord Almighty, in his sovereign grace, breaks into her religious heart so that she can believe the gospel. She went down to the river to pray and to wash herself, cleanse herself of her sins, but instead she she met Jesus and she was cleansed for all eternity. How can we know this for sure? Look at verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, that this is genuine faith in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She and her household were baptized. This is why I'm so excited about next Sunday. Because it's a public declaration. 
It's a public declaration of her newfound faith in Jesus. That she is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. No, no, No Jesus plus the law. No Jesus plus my own standards for my life. No. Jesus alone. So now, Sunrise, what do we do with this? Because Lydia is not unlike most people that we will meet in Cayman. Successful businessmen, successful businesswomen who seem to have it all together. They're living the good life. They're morally good people, nice people, nice house, nice car, nice career. Seem to have it all together. Why would they need Jesus? And it's easy to feel daunted by this and not even bother. But the question we have to ask is, who is the main hero of this incident? It's not Paul. All Paul could do was simply share the gospel. He says it's, or Luke writes, he says it's the Lord who opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. You see, we have to have a a mind shift. We have to have a paradigm shift that we are not the central cog in the mission of the gospel in this world. We are simply the means. We are simply the vessels that God can use to bring his grace into someone's life. Yes, we are to be like Paul. We are to be obedient. We are to share the gospel. We are to share our lives. We share our testimonies. We share what Jesus has done in us and, and through us. But the whole time, we ought to be fully dependent on the Lord and His grace in order to bring about the change in someone's life. He will open their hearts to pay attention to what we're saying. All I am asking is, are we willing to be vessels or the means of this grace? And if the answer is it, don't, don't start thinking about the fears, but what about this? No. If the answer is yes, then he will honor that because he's the hero of the story. The mission continues in Philippi. Paul and Silas now staying at Lydia's house. They, they're on their way back to the river to preach the gospel when they come upon a little girl who's demon-possessed. Look at point two. God's grace accomplishes his mission by overcoming the demonic heart. Now, let me give you a bit of a brief theology regarding evil in the world before we look at this incident. The first thing I need us to realize is that the the devil and his demons are not equal but opposing forces to God in this world. Like there's this big cosmic spiritual battle going out there somewhere and we're all waiting here with bated breath and, and, you know, just kind of to see, is God going to win or is the devil going to win? Who's going to win? Are we hoping God's going to win at the end of the day so we can go to heaven? No. The devil and his minions are created beings. Anything created immediately falls under the ultimate power and dominion of God. They are fallen angels and therefore they do not come close to the power of God. In fact, Jesus on the cross destroyed the power of the devil over the Christian's life. And now he is simply awaiting his eternal doom in hell when Jesus returns at the end of the age. However, the Bible does describe the current age and the current world that we're living in as an evil age under the sway and influence of the devil. And this includes non-believers. 
It doesn't mean that every non-believer is possessed by a demon, but they rather live under the influence and according to the ways of a fallen world, fallen because of the devil or influenced by the devil. But now there are times when someone can be possessed by a demon. To be possessed means you have come under the power and the influence of that demon. It has possessed you. It, in other words, you belong to it. Now, according to my theology, I don't believe a Christian can be possessed by a demon, but I think you can be oppressed from an external sense. That you can, uh, at times, experience some form of evil. You can, at times, experience some unusual temptation. By that, I mean other than our own fleshy, sinful desires. Let me put some Bible under that for you. Colossians 1, 12 to 13, look at this. Paul again writes, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Just stop it. You see the language of grace again? Who has qualified us? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to do, to, for what? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us. There's grace language again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The NIV translation says he has rescued us. He has rescued us from the domain, the authority of darkness. He's come and rescued us from being a possession or a slave of darkness by putting you in a new kingdom, by putting you under new authority. Under a new dominion, you are now the possession of King Jesus. If you like, you are now possessed by the Holy Spirit. You are now under his dominion, his reign. Jesus says in John 10, 28, that it's he that gives eternal life and that no one can then snatch you out of his hands. Once he's given you eternal life, you are in his hands. Nothing, no one can take you out of his hands. You or the devil. That's the theology I want us to have. That's the framework I want us to have when it comes to evil in this world. Yes, Paul tells us and the other writers tell us to be on guard, to put on our armor. But to know, part of our armor is knowing that we belong to Jesus. That we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom. He is our king. He is our ruler. He possesses us now. Now watch this. Watch Colossians 1, 12 to 13 happen in real life with a poor possessed girl. Look at this. Verse 16 of Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Brought them much profit. So this is a girl who's probably in her teenage years, maybe even younger, and she's enslaved in two ways. By a demon that gave her the power to fortune tell and deceive many people. And secondly, she was enslaved to some people who were making a lot of money out of her. Just simply trafficking in another form. But now, look at God's grace and mercy upon her life. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These are men, these men, sorry, are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So that's one interesting thing about demons is they always recognize the truth. 
Right? You see that in the, in the Gospels. They always recognize who Jesus was. They just don't believe in the truth. They don't believe in Jesus. Probably because they realize they're living on borrowed time. Because you know, we're, we're not sure of the tone here. Maybe it was taunting or, or being sarcastic or, or was it being said out of fear? But what we do know is that it began to irritate Paul. Look at verse 18. And as she kept doing, uh, as she kept, and this she kept doing for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I'll be honest with you. Um, when I got to this part in my prep, uh, it was Wednesday morning, I actually got a little bit emotional. Uh, maybe it's because I'm, I'm a dad of, of two little girls and, and I don't want them ever to be enslaved or oppressed or possessed by any form of evil. I want them to live in the joy and the freedom that Jesus has purchased for them on the cross. And I began to think of all the children, all the women who have been, who have been or are being trafficked around the world, people who are oppressed or possessed by various forms of evil, but I was looking at this story and going, there's hope. There is hope in the gospel of Jesus because it is the power of his grace. It's the power of his grace to set people free. Paul didn't have any power. It's Jesus through Paul. Paul was just annoyed. He was just trying to preach and there's babbling going on in the corner. But even in his annoyance, Jesus reached out in grace, love, and mercy and rescued her. Took her from the domain of darkness in that moment right into the kingdom of his son. And Jesus can do the same through us. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have all the power. We'll never have the power. He does. Jesus can use us, ordinary us, to do extraordinary things. Like helping deliver people from the domain of darkness into his light, into his kingdom, into his hand. But now this is just the start of some problems for Paul and Silas in particular. Look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain, their hope of profit was gone. They were happy. They were so relieved for her. They themselves began to repent. No. When you push back on the kingdom of darkness, it will push back on you. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as, Rome, uh, um, as Romans to accept or practice. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them. I mean, just imagine that, right? This is a crowd on two guys. No clothes, whatever 
I mean, their clothes couldn't really protect them in the first place, but they have been beaten with rods by a crowd. Can you imagine what they looked like? Then on top of that, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So picture this, they're beaten, they're bruised, they're bleeding. They're then thrown into the deepest part of the prison, into the dungeon where there's no light. And there is an abominable stench because there's no bathrooms. In fact, mainly because they're fastened to the stocks. They can't go anywhere. And they say they, they would stretch the prisoner's legs as far as they could possibly go and then fasten them in that position. And so there they're lying in this excruciating tension, bleeding, bruised, possibly even broken bones. See, it's not easy being on mission for the sake of the gospel. It's not easy making Jesus known in this evil age for the rescue of people from the domain of darkness because there will be pushback. But what sustains? What sustained Paul and his team? And what should sustain us? It's the empowering work of God's grace in us and through us. And what should motivate us is that lives can be changed. Lives can be rescued from evil into the light because Jesus is ultimately in control. He will always, always, listen to me, he will always have the final say. Let me show it to you. Point number three, God's grace accomplishes his mission by overcoming the hopeless heart. And by hopeless heart, I don't don't mean Paul and Silas here because, I mean, we would naturally think that, but, but look at what they begin doing. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, just stop there. It's midnight, right? They can't sleep. They're in so much pain. And yet they begin to pray and they begin to sing hymns to God. And then I love this phrase, and the prisoners were listening to them. Imagine that. It's midnight, dead quiet in that prison. And right from the very depths, from the dungeon, you hear these Amazing words coming up to you. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So no ordinary earthquake. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Stop there for a second. You see the contrast? Paul and Silas are imprisoned. They're the ones in prison. They're the ones who are beaten up and, and, and bruised, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, for all they know, that they could be executed tomorrow. And yet they're the ones praying. Yet they're the ones singing hymns to God. They haven't given up hope in God. And yet I wonder how many of us would have. I wonder if I would have. Would I I have taken the victim mentality? Would I have taken the, the entitled attitude like, God, how can you allow this to happen? Here I am preaching your good news. 
Here I am on, on mission with you to make you known, to set people free from the domain of darkness and bring them into your kingdom. How can you allow this to happen to me? This is not fair. But yet they knew something about God. They knew who God is. And they knew that God is always up to something. In contrast, the jailer, he's about to commit suicide. Some scholars say that it was customary that if a jailer lost his prisoner or prisoners, that he would then suffer the same fate that the prisoners were supposed to have. And so he assumes all the prisoners now have escaped, and therefore he sees his only option is to kill himself. He believes there, there, there is no other hope. There is no other option. I mean, even though it was an unusual event, right? I mean, he could have gone to his authorities and said, hey, listen, man, I mean, you, you felt the earthquake yourself, right? That's out of my control. And yet he knows his authorities would still need someone to blame. Sometimes if we're going to be on mission to make Jesus known in this world, we are definitely going to encounter many people who are in hopeless situations. Hopeless in their marriage. Hopeless in their singleness. Hopeless in their health. Hopeless in their financial or work situations. Hopeless in their sin, in their insecurities, their pain, their, their, their anxieties. The list can go on. Hopelessness is where you cannot possibly see another way out. This is it. This is it. There's nothing more I can do. And that's when depression begins to set in. And possibly even thoughts of suicide. And I want to be sensitive here because I realize that even as Christians, we, we sometimes have to fight these feelings of hopelessness. But can you see from the story that we serve a God of the impossible? It gets even better. Look at verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. I'm fascinated by that because if I was there with Paul, I'm like, no, Paul, this is time to escape. God's made the way open. I mean, like the shackles have just fallen off. And my leg's broken, but I'm going to drag myself out of here. This is clearly from God. And yet, Paul sees it as an opportunity to, to further the cause of the gospel. Verse 29. And the jailer called for the light and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why does he say that? Because everyone was listening to Paul and Silas sing these beautiful hymns. They were singing the good news of Jesus. And I believe God was busy drawing this guy to himself. And the earthquake was just simply the means to bring Paul and this man together. A little, a little a side note. I, I, I look at this incident and it reminds me as, as to why our songs, the songs that we sing are so important. Why they should be gospel-centered songs. Because with our songs, we're praising God, we're adoring God, we, we're just in absolute gratitude for what He's done for us. But at the same time, we're preaching. We're preaching to ourselves. We, we, we're trying to encourage our, our, our strength and our, and our faith. And hopefully some of us come to faith through them. Verse 31. And they said, here's the answer. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Like, let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you what he's done on the cross. That he took all of your sin upon himself and in return gave you his righteousness so that by faith in him, you are now deemed righteous before the creator of the universe. You are now forgiven. You are now taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're an adopted son or daughter in his kingdom for all eternity. Verse 33, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now look at this for the grace of God. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household. Here's why, that he had believed in God. From hopelessness and suicidal to rejoicing. And that word rejoice in the original Greek was never used in secular Greek language, which means it refers to a deep spiritual joy that only comes through faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus saves us from our sin, but it also begins to transform our lives. It gives us spiritual life and it gives us hope. The jailer was most likely, uh, some scholars say, probably an old Roman soldier who's retired, probably inflicted many wounds on many enemies, and now he's the one dressing and washing wounds. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, said this. He said, he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from his sins. We could say he, he washed them from their stripes and he himself was washed by the stripes of Jesus. He takes Paul and Silas out of the prison into his own house and he feeds them and he cares for them. And he does this without regard for what his authorities might say. I mean, doing this would possibly not only cost him his job, but possibly even cost him his life. See, this is a picture of what the power of God's grace can do through the gospel when someone has lost all hope. And again, there was nothing special about Paul or Silas here. They just knew who God is and what he's capable of doing, even in an apparent hopeless situation for themselves and then for the jailer. Sunrise, the same God who did that, the same God who did that is calling you and I to be a part of the same mission, making him known to people who have hopeless hearts so that they can begin to rejoice in a very, very unique way and have new purpose and new meaning for their lives. So as I finish off, fast forward 10 years, and Paul, unfortunately, he's back in prison, this time in Rome, and he decides to write to the Philippians. And he writes this, Philippians 1, 1 to 2. He says, Paul and Timothy, that's who's writing the letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, listen to this now, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So you kind of get the impression that, hey, in 10 years, this church has grown. It even has a a leadership in place, he says, with the overseers, that's elders and and deacons. And look at verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know what I picture when I see verse two? When I see the word grace, and I picture as this letter was gonna be read out to the church, I picture a smile coming across an older businesswoman, possibly even retired now. The smile coming across her, her, her face because she knows that word grace, that's the thing that set her free from a religious heart. And, and I see her breathing in the peace of God that she's, there's no more striving to try to be perfect before God because Jesus did the striving for her on the cross. I picture a smile coming across maybe a woman now in her early 20s, maybe mid-20s, possibly married even with children, smiling because she, she knows the power of that grace. That grace set her free from evil possession and slavery. And I see her reveling in the peace of mind that she now has. Uh, I see a, a man who was once a once hardened man who inflicted many wounds and death upon many people, who was once in a very hopeless situation, who considered suicide. But now he sits there with a gentle disposition, his family around him, looking forward to what Paul now has to say in this letter. And sunrise, we can have those stories too. We, we have stories, but we can have more because God's grace is the power to complete the mission of the gospel. And you and I, we get to be the means. You and I, we get to be the vessels of that grace for the transformation of people's hearts. Whether they're religious hearts, demonic hearts, hopeless hearts, whatever kind of heart, his grace through the gospel has the power. Amen. Why don't you pray with me? Oh, Father, I, we all come before you and we're just so humbled by your great grace towards us, your amazing grace that we sung earlier. It will come and save wretches like us, sinners like us, enslaved by various passions and mindsets. Thank you for using someone to open our eyes, to see you, Jesus, to believe in you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. But I pray now for those of us who are in your kingdom, Jesus, use us, use us to make you known. This, this grace through the gospel, it's way too good to keep to ourselves. People need to hear this. People need to see you. People need to experience your forgiveness. They need to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom, your kingdom of peace and joy and grace. We want lots of stories, Jesus. Just like this jailer and Lydia and the poor little girl, we, we want stories like that too. Use us, please. I pray for Anyone here this morning who or might be listening to this later, that if they don't know you, Jesus, would you use this sermon, this service, as a means of grace to open their eyes and their hearts to, to believe in you, 
to be set free by you, to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.